Well, for most of us, especially those of us who have grown up either in the church or watching the Charlie Brown Christmas special year after year, the classic passage in Luke's gospel that tells the tale of the very first Christmas is one that we've heard so many times and has become so familiar to us that we almost don't hear it anymore. We hear the verse reference and then we hear smatterings of and in those days and Augustus and that guy whose name starts with Q that's so hard to pronounce if you're doing an Advent reading, right? Stephan family, you guys did a great job. And then it goes on from there, Bethlehem, no room in the end, glory to God, peace on earth, kind of, um, and it all kind of blurs together. So that's why this Christmas, we are revisiting this passage each Sunday from a different angle, opening it up in a fresh way by asking a different question of it each time. In his book, Just So Stories, Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem that says, I keep six honest serving men they taught me all I knew. Their names were what and why and when and how and where and who. So this Advent, Kipling's faithful friends have been invited to help us investigate the Christmas story together and to dive into it a little more, more closely and hopefully to be able to hear it in a fresh way. Last Sunday, kicking off this year's Advent celebration, Brentley walked us through the story by asking the question, what? What happened first? What happened next? This morning, we go back to the passage, and this time we'll be asking the question, when? So let me just read through the passage and listen with that word in mind. And you'll notice, I think, immediately that there are an awful lot of points of reference that relate to the timing. Starting in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. 
There are all kinds of things to explore in this passage related to the word when, as I'm sure you noticed. And I would encourage you, maybe even during this week, to just go back and look at those again and do some rummaging around and see what you notice. But for me, I had a hard time as I was studying this passage over this past couple of weeks, I had a hard time getting past those first three words. In those days, Luke says. And I want to focus there. On what days exactly was Luke talking about? So two different problems surface as we open up those words a bit. The problem of the census and the problem of the senses. And I'd like to have a look at both of those. So the first problem is the problem of the census. How many of you have heard about the contradiction that exists between what Luke says in his historical biography of the life of Jesus and the historical information that we have from other historical sources, other ancient sources, about Quirinius and the timing of his census. Well, it's, I think it's pretty important for followers of Christ to be aware of this because when people try to show that the Bible is not historically reliable, this is usually the very first passage that they point to. So let me explain to you why that's the case. Here's the basic problem that calls into question the historical reliability of Luke's gospel, and as a result, the reliability of the Bible in its entirety. Both Luke, to start out with, both Luke and Matthew tell us in their historical records that Jesus was born before Herod, the king of the Jews, died. And we know that he died in 4 BC. We also know um, from other sources that when Herod died, he divided up his kingdom between his three sons. And his son, Herod Archelaus, was placed over the region in which all of the drama in the New Testament, at least uh, the initial part of the drama, unfolds in what's known as Judea and Samaria. His name was Herod Archelaus. So uh, it turns out that Herod Archelaus was an incredibly incompetent ruler, and uh, the emperor of Rome, Emperor Augustus, got more and more exasperated, and finally he reached in and took Herod Archelaus off the throne in that region and, and put him into exile, and in his place, he uh, put a Roman military leader whose name was Sulpicius Quirinius. Aren't you glad that Luke didn't include his first name, for those of you who have to do those Advent readings? And then, according to a number of different historians, uh, Josephus uh, being a Jewish historian um, that most people point to, um, after he became governor, Quirinius held a census in 6 AD. So if what the NIV has is a good translation of Luke chapter 2, verse 2, that this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, that means that the census that brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem for Jesus to be born there happened 10 years later, which would mean that Luke made a huge mistake. So what do we do with that? It's interesting that Luke himself tells us that he really carefully researched all of the facts and he was committed to giving an accurate account of them. The opening verses, the first three verses of 
his biography of Jesus, uh, Luke's gospel, he says this, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account. So this would be a pretty huge blunder for somebody who is committed to a historically accurate account of the life of Jesus. But here's something that's very interesting. Over the years, as archaeological evidence has been turned up, Luke has shown himself to be a very reliable historian when it comes to other facts. In fact, as investigative journalist Lee Strobel says in his book, The Case for Christ, over the years, scholars have asserted that Luke was mistaken about certain historical facts, only to be proven wrong by new archaeological findings. For example, many scholars saw Luke's reference to Lysanias as the tetrarch or governor of Abilene in 27 AD as a disqualifying error. Lysanias, they knew, had ruled in Chalcis 50 years before, and he was no tetrarch. Then an inscription was found in a dig, and it later proved that Luke was right. One study from the early 90s reviewed each of Luke's references to physical places and found not a single mistake. So what do we do with this specific glaring mistake in Luke chapter 2? It's actually really easily solved. It all comes down to the Greek word protos, which is the word that the NIV translates first when it says this was the first census. Two things about this word. First of all, if Luke thought there was only one census that took place, he would never have included this word in his historical record. He's clearly differentiating between uh, more than one uh, different censuses. But the other thing that's important to notice is this Greek word protos actually has two related meanings. It can mean first, but it could also mean earlier or former or previous. So while the verse could be translated along these lines, as the NIV does it, this census, this census was the first one while, uh, or that Quirinius made. It could also be translated in this sort of a way. This census was the previous one to the one that Quirinius made. Now, as more archaeological discoveries have been, been made over the years, we've learned that regular censuses were a, a part of Augustus's rule as emperor all through the Middle East. We've got a number of different evidences of them being carried out on a regular basis. But of all of those censuses, there was one that was so well known among the Jewish people that they all referred to it simply as the census. Now, outside of the Christmas story, most of us have never heard of this guy, Sulpicius Quirinius. He's just the man whose name we hope we don't have to pronounce. But every Jewish person in the first century would have known exactly who Quirinius was and when his notorious census took place. That's because the census that he took when he took office as governor was taken to determine, specifically was taken to determine the value of the property that was held by the Jewish people in order that heavy taxes could be laden against them and a lot of that money could be hauled off into the Roman treasury. 
That census and the taxes that followed were the first bitter taste of Roman occupying rule. And in fact, that specific census was what gave birth to the zealots, the, the, the patriotic Jewish group of those who were, who were willing to use violence to drive the Roman occupiers out of the land. So everyone knew about the census of Quirinius. It was known simply as the census. And in fact, it's interesting, that's how Luke the historian refers to it in, as he quotes Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. He says, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census. So clearly, Luke knows what he's talking about here as he's gathering his story together. I'm convinced that Luke researched this carefully, just as he did all the other details of his story, and he knew exactly what he was talking about when he included this word protos. He's saying this was the earlier census, the one taken before that later well-known one that happened once Quirinius became governor. Or as the New Testament for Everyone translation puts it, I think faithfully, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census before the one when Quirinius was governor. So when we turn to the ancient biographies of Jesus that we call the Gospels that begin the New Testament, we can do so with confidence that they are reliable. Well, that addresses the problem of the census. What about the problem of the senses? Here's what I mean by that. Most of us, when we think about the different seasons of our lives and, and we are trying to make sense of the times in which we live, we look at them through our senses. We try to interpret our days through the lens of what we can see and what we can hear. In other words, through what we experience through our senses. That was the time when I went to, to that school or had that job or lived in that neighborhood or faced that particular challenge. But this passage calls us to look at our lives and the times in which we live in a completely different way. As we saw, this passage begins with the phrase, in those days. Which days? What days are we talking about? Well, it's pretty clear that the answer to that question has to be found in the protext, in the chapter that comes before this one, in Luke chapter 1. Well, a quick look back and a quick read through of, of chapter 1 would seem to confirm that we should keep track of time on the basis of our senses, of what our life circumstances are that, in which we find ourselves. Here's what we discover in the first chapter. These are the days when Herod is the Jewish king and when Augustus is the Roman emperor. More specifically, uh, this is the time um, when, during the lifetime of a man named Zechariah who served as a temple priest. Even more specifically still, this is during the time when his cohort of priests was called upon to serve in the temple in Jerusalem. And even more specifically, this is the time when it was his turn, his once-in-a-lifetime turn, to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple. And we also know from chapter 1 that this is a time when Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are struggling with infertility. So when were those days that Luke refers back to in Luke chapter 2, verse 1? Well, if we look at it through the senses, we would say this is a time of national and political uh, upheaval, a time of profound national uprest when the Herodians are losing power and the Romans are on the ascendancy. 
From a religious perspective, we could see this as a time of rising persecution among the Jewish people by the Roman occupiers. From a, a work or vocational perspective, we could see this as the time when Zechariah and his unit were on active duty, and when it's his turn finally to serve in the Holy of Holies, the crowning moment of his career filled with all kinds of performance anxiety, I'm sure. And from a relational perspective, this is a time when Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are dealing with the whole swirl of painful emotions that are connected with dealing with infertility, the sense of loss and disappointment and sadness and fear. But none of those things are the things that Luke has in mind when he says, in those days. To know what he's talking about, we need to go a little bit later in chapter 1. And that's where we see Zechariah praying in gratitude to God for the gift that God has given to him of the miraculous gift of a son given to him in his old age, a baby who would come to be known as John the Baptist. And then he says to his newborn son, holding him in his hands, Luke chapter one, verses, beginning verse 76, and you, my child, you will be called a prophet of the most high. To you, for you will go on before the Lord, the, the promised Messiah, to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. You may be aware that in the New Testament, there are two different Greek words that are used to refer to time. Chronos is a word for the regular little chunks of time that are marked off by our timekeeping devices, minutes and hours and days and weeks and months. But kairos is time seen through the lens of what God is up to at a given moment. It is time seen as seasons that come filled with the redemptive purposes of God. When Luke refers to those days, he is not speaking of the chronos markers of those days or months or years or, or of the circumstances that took place within them. He is speaking of the kairos time of God working redemptively in human history. Zechariah is not telling time by his circumstances, by clocks and calendars, but by what God is doing redemptively in this season of human history. And so is Luke. Zechariah and Luke are telling kairos time. Time told by the light of the Son, the Son of God, Jesus, for whom his own son, John, will be the herald and the forerunner. It has been a long spiritual night, but now, says Zechariah, now is the time when the sun from heaven is just about to crest the horizon, to rise and to shine on those living in a land that has been blanketed for so long in spiritual, spiritual darkness. That's what Luke means when he says, in those days. At this moment, on the, the cusp of a brand new spiritual era. This is a sundial. I'm sure a number of you are familiar with sundials and how they work. Sometimes, if you're not really familiar with them, you look at them, they seem a little bit complicated, but they're actually incredibly simple. All they rely upon is the light of the sun and the presence of the sun. And the angle of the light from the sun falling upon, across the face of the sundial is the means that's used to determine what time it is. 
I think it's helpful for us to think of redemptive history like a sundial, attentive to the direction that the light of the sun is coming from, with four major eras, each of them determined by the location of the Son of God. From the perspective of redemptive history, there are four crucial eras, creation, rebellion, reconciliation, and new creation. The first era is creation. It begins when God creates all things from nothing, an act in which the Son of God participates. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, there's but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there's but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Creation is marked by shalom, the design and purposes of God finding their perfect fulfillment in every part of creation and humanity experiencing a relationship of wonderful intimacy with God in the midst of the beauty of creation. Then comes the rebellion when humanity mutinies against the creator who made them for his good and loving purposes. And nonetheless, even at that moment, that the world plunges into spiritual darkness and separation from God, God speaks the first of his many promises of his coming son, who will come and shine in this dark world. So though this, is, this second era is one of pain and brokenness, it is also a time of growing hope, as the promise is spoken again and again and again. Here are just two of, of dozens of examples of these promises that are spoken that build hope in the people. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given. And then so many of those themes echoed in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wing. The third era of redemptive history is the period of reconciliation. The new day that dawns after the long night, which begins with the birth of a little baby, long promised, miraculously conceived, carried to Bethlehem by a young mother named Mary and delivered there in a stable, fully God, and yet a tiny vulnerable baby who must have looked something like this cute little guy. Oh, that's a picture of Eli. <laughs> that's Eli Kane, grandson of Tony and Michelle Kane. Are you guys here? Nope. And happens to be our grandson as well. Though the Son of God does not put all things right, not all at once, through his life and his ministry and his death, he puts the most important thing right, reconciling us to God and allowing us to experience his grace and mercy, even as the world remains broken and we await his return and full redemption. Earlier in his prayer in Luke chapter one, Zechariah tells us why God is sending his son into this world. Jesus will come, Zechariah says, to forgive our sins and reconcile us to God. Jesus will come to equip us to live lives in God's service that reflect him and are pleasing to him. And Jesus will come to bring us into a life of peace and purpose. 
And then finally, one day still in the future for us will come the new creation. One day Jesus will return and all will be made new and human history as we know it will come to an end and all we who belong to him will be raised up with new bodies to live in a new creation. As it says in Revelation chapter 11, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever God's son will reign forever and we will enjoy a relationship of intimacy with him in his presence for all of eternity. What time is it? We live in the third era of redemption between the first and the second coming of God the son into this world. Here's how I think that can inform and help us today. I think you and I can be so tempted to try to make sense of our lives and the times in which we live on the basis of our circumstances. To think of these days in terms of who's in power in our nation or where we work or who we are in relationship with or what our immediate struggles or challenges are. And I think Luke chapter two presses us to think in different terms altogether. To live in a constant mindfulness of the redemptive era in which we live and to think of our circumstances not in and of themselves, but always with reference to God and his redemptive purposes being worked out in and through them. Is this the time when COVID hit or the economy went bad or I lost my dad or gave birth to my son? Is this the time when my best friend moved away or when I got diagnosed with cancer or when I moved or I got married or I retired? If we follow Luke's lead, I think we are called to live in the world of time differently. To think this is the time. These are the days when the light is dawning on this world. When Jesus is coming and he is working on my behalf and, and he is working to reconcile me to God and to equip me to live a life in God's service that is pleasing to him and to bring me into a life of peace and purpose while I am working at this place or married to this person or facing this challenge or dealing with this loss. As I've shared with you before, I came into this fall uh, at the end of a surprising string of health challenges, a herniated disc followed by COVID, followed by a bronchial infection, followed by a kidney stone. And so that string of challenges had me coming into the fall feeling so far behind. So at that point, I had a choice. Do I look upon my life and my circumstances through my senses? Is this the time when I'm falling behind? Or is this the time when Jesus has come and his light is shining in our midst? And he is working on our behalf and he is reconciling us to God and he is equipping us to live a life in God's service that is pleasing to him. And he is forming his likeness in us and he is bringing us into a life of peace and purpose together while I am working at this church and happen to be facing some health challenges and happen to be coming into the fall feeling behind. It is amazing the difference that it makes when I tell time based on what God is doing instead of based on what I'm doing. So how do you think about these days? 
that the scriptures refer to as the today in which the light of the sun is dawning. What would it look like for you to see your every circumstance with reference to God and his his redemptive purposes for your life? God assembles Mary and Joseph and the angels and the shepherds all at one place at one time to usher in a new day and to invite us into it. Until Jesus returns, each new day is a continuation of that day when God's son was born into our midst and has begun fulfilling God's redemptive purposes for us. Today is the day when the new day dawns all over again. Today is the day when Jesus comes. Today is the day when he is working on our behalf, reconciling us to the Father, equipping us to live life in God's service in a way that's pleasing to him, forming his likeness in us and bringing us into a life of peace and purpose together. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray that in these days you would be gracious to lift our eyes off of the circumstances that we see and the noise that we hear and lift our eyes to see you, God, in the midst of all things and to hear your voice spoken above the rumble of this world. Let this be a day, Lord, in which you shine the son of righteousness. In your name we pray.